I've come to the top of a hill overlooking Newton Ards, my hometown. Just beside me, the remains of what used to be a working lead mine. Far over to my right, Scrabble Tower, like something out of a TV fantasy series, oversees the whole area from the top of Scrabble Hill. Just beyond that, you can just make out in the hazy distance uh, the, the Morn Mountains with at 850 metres Sleeve Donard, the tallest mountain in Northern Ireland. The sky is a bit overcast now, but a few days ago as I stood at this spot to cap the whole scene, there was a unravelling vapour trail just cutting across the blue of the sky, probably some 10 kilometres above the whole scene, left by one of the few planes still flying. And down below on the shores of the loch, Newton Ards itself, it's quiet now, it's early, so it's quite normal for this time of the day. But it will remain quiet later on. And indeed I was here yesterday on a Saturday and it normally you go into town on a Saturday morning, later than this, but on the morning there's a bustling market in the town square and as you go about your business, the shoppers and the traffic and the tradespeople and the street preacher and the country music van provide a noisy, rambunctious background as you go about to the corner shop to get your local paper to the farmer in the market to get your locally produced milk and to one of the town's many bakeries for say a sourdough loaf but yesterday the town square was quiet right through the morning there was no market the whole town is in lockdown The coronavirus pandemic that has swept the world has affected everyone and everything. We have seen princes and prime ministers catch it, as well as the rest of us, the common three-fifths, as an uncle used to say, us ordinary commoners, our small-town neighbours. But of course, it's an illusion. The pandemic doesn't affect everyone equally. Some are far better placed than others to be able to work from home, say, or to get the best treatment to afford proper protective equipment and sanitation, to hire help to teach the kids or to look after an elderly mum so that they can get on with their jobs at full salary, in relative peace, using their high-speed broadband and purpose-bought laptops, occasionally stopping for a stroll in their capacious gardens. Not quite the same experience as a frontline, low-paid care worker who can't work from home, who hasn't been provided with adequate equipment, and who has a third-floor apartment with no garden and precious little help looking after the kids, to say nothing of their gran. It was a similar story just over a decade ago when the Great Crash happened. Banks and financiers got bailouts, the commoners got cutbacks. And in a sense, it has always been so. For decades, arguably with brief exceptions for centuries, We've lived under a system which is designed to crank the lion's share of wealth and power vertically upwards to a relatively small number at the top while putting pressure down on the many relatively poor and powerless. 
I call it the crank economy. Picture a car jack. You turn the handle and the gearing raises the top plate. This in turn is capable of lifting huge weights vertically upwards. It's designed to lift a car after all. But crucially, it gets the purchase to do so by pressing downwards, distributing the weight across the two bottom plates, the feet at the bottom. Just as with a car jack, our global economic system has long been structured largely, though not exclusively, to direct forces vertically, to crank wealth and power upwards by putting pressure down at the bottom, with one foot plate pressing on low paid and insecure workers, and the other on the resources of the living planet itself. Here's how it works. Power is relative. If you're going to crank power to the top, you have to take it from the bottom. In the days of competing European would-be empires, you just went into a territory and exploited your comparative advantage in technology and weaponry to take the land off its inhabitants. Or you could take the inhabitants off the land and ship them off like so much cargo to use as slave labour in some other newly acquired territory. That way, you increase your comparative advantage and so you're in an even better position to go and do it all again elsewhere. The era of formal empire might have come to an end in the mid to late 20th century, but these sorts of dynamics don't just shut down overnight. After empires, enterprises, with the encouragement of the Reagan and Thatcher governments and their successors, continued the competitive acquisition of power, each trying to get one up on its rival, often by undercutting them on price. But low prices don't come cheap. Somebody's got to pay the real cost. Often it's the workforce that shoulders the cost. Sometimes it's the supplier, sometimes it's the living earth. The manager of mega cheap superstore, say, sees that milk is a penny cheaper in super cheap megastore, another big box of a shop across the road. So he, I bet it's a he, reduces the price by two pence or five, why not? Then the manager of the rival store looks back across the road and knocks off another few pence. And pretty soon the farmer, remember the farmer with his milk in our local market, has to sell to one or other of the big boxes at a price that doesn't even cover his costs. The farmers then have to start cutting costs too just to stay afloat. But you can only do that by going to scale. So small farms sell out to big agribusinesses who do everything on an industrial scale and with industrial quantities of pesticides and chemical fertilizers. And if there's an occasional spill, well, they can cover the cost of any fines they might get, though it's an outside chance, and still come out in profit not least thanks to the industrial quantities of public subsidies they receive. Toxins are dumped into the air or into the waters. A diverse range of species in a given area are chemically wiped out to make room for an efficiently harvestable monocrop. Oh, and let's not spend too much on safety equipment for the workers administering the poison. Wouldn't want to eat into our bottom line after all. That's one bit of gearing pointed vertically. One way the living planet has to bear the weight of one of the plates of the crank economy to say nothing of the huge quantities of diesel used for the machinery and the transportation. Because that's the other thing, lots of the produce is not going down the road to mega cheap superstore or to super cheap megastore, at least not directly. No, it's going to sail off on a freight vessel the size of a small town to the far east, the more efficiently to be packed up and sent back again. Or Irish lamb, for instance, will be shipped off to the Antipodes at the midpoint passing a ship's worth of New Zealand lamb being sent in the opposite direction. Got to keep those costs down. Got to keep that gearing pointed vertically. And if that means transporting goods from one end of the world to the other to shave off a few pennies from our margins, then that's what we'll do. Meanwhile, the workers inside the big boxes, 
the people who actually have to bring in the products, stack the shelves, staff the tills and clean up the spills, are increasingly put on precarious, short-term contracts instead of permanent ones, on wages that may rise nominally but don't go as far as they used to, certainly not enough for you and your other half to put down a deposit on that house you've got your heart set on. Still, at least it's a job. Just think, the work could have been outsourced to countries where labour and lives are held cheap. That top you bought in Prima Rosa, not its real name. Was it stitched together by Bangladeshi women working 70 hours a week for poverty wages in an unventilated factory with too many floors and a chain around the fire doors? The coal tan in your smartphone. Was it dug from a muddy hole by a boy with nothing but a wet handkerchief around his mouth by way of safety equipment? But at least it keeps the costs down. And if you can undercut your arrival by driving down costs like this, the rewards for those at the top can be impressive. Let's see if we can get a sense of just how big the gap between bottom and top has become. It's easy to find statistics showing that billions of the world's workers, particularly in Africa, Latin America, South Asia and other regions in the Global South, earn little more than a few dollars a day. It's equally easy to find statistics on the immense wealth of a handful of billionaires, Bezos, Gates, Buffett and the rest. But when you start counting in billions, it can be easy for the eyes to glaze over. It's difficult to get a real bodily sense of what a billion looks like. So let's go back to the lead mines, looking out towards Scrabo Tower, and think about heights. Let's convert income to height. What would inequality look like if every dollar, say, were a millimetre? Well, the current federal US minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. If every dollar were a millimetre, that's seven and a quarter millimetres. For a 40-hour week, you'd get $290 or 290 millimetres. That's less than a foot long. In fact, you could draw a line that long down an A4 sheet of paper with half a centimetre to spare. What about those higher up the income ladder? Well, we're going to need a long, long ladder. Let's start in the UK. The average FTSE 100 CEO in 2019 was paid 3.46 million for the year. Convert that to dollars per week, and that's $81,260, or 81 metres on our scale. Remember where the US minimum wage is an A4 sheet of paper. Since Scrabo Tower is only 41 metres tall, you'd have to stack two of them up to unroll a scroll of paper long enough for this income. But that's only the average FTSE CEO. The highest paid UK CEO last year took in 124 million. That's over 2.3 million pounds or 2.9 million dollars a week or 2.9 kilometers on our scale. You're more than a quarter away to the airplane's vapor trail by this stage. But then you get to the really rich people. In fact, let's just cut to the richest of all, Jeff Bezos. He seems to have been having a really good crisis. It's reported that between the 1st of January and 15th of April this year, his wealth nominally increased by $25 billion. That's over $1.6 billion a week. What does that look like in relation to our scale on which, remember, a US worker on minimum wage would have the height of a sheet of paper? Well, you'd have to go up from sea level above Scrabble Hill at 160 metres, past the tower with its extra 41 metres, past the height of the Morns at 850 metres, up to the vapour trail at 10 kilometres, on up another 40 or so kilometres to the top edge of the stratosphere, and then on up into open space for 1,600 kilometres. Congratulations, you're now a thousand miles above the surface of the Earth. Let me repeat it. If a weekly minimum wage income is an A4 sheet of paper, 
Then, on the same scale, Bezos's wealth this year increased by a thousand miles a week. Of course, share prices can go down as well as up, and it's not certain he could actually realise this money, and so on and so forth. Nevertheless, a thousand miles. You'd have to get a ladder up from the shores of Strangford Loch, right up to four times the height of the orbiting International Space Station, to get this wealth increase onto our scale. Is it any wonder there are vocal and practical supporters of the crank economy among the very wealthy? The more interesting question is, why have we not democratically overturned the mechanisms generating such immense inequality already? Before we leave Mr Bezos and his company, Amazon, let's take a quick look around at ground level. Despite a certain TV advert telling us how beautiful all Donna's cakes are, not all the workers in Amazon are full of the joys at the astronomical growth of their company's fortunes. Take the two employees who were fired after they publicly denounced the company's treatment of warehouse workers during the coronavirus pandemic. Even leaving aside the root of their complaint, it turns out one of the rules of your employment contract is you are not allowed to criticise the company in public. There's one bit of vertical gearing for you. A contract drawn up to ensure you stick to the company line or lose your job. Another little bit of gearing is the zapper you have to use when you work on the factory floor, as it were, for Amazon. This is the device that lets you monitor where goods are in the vast warehouses. Yes, but it also monitors you. It records in minute detail where you are, when you got there, when you leave, and crucially, how long it has taken you to do each task. Got to keep the goods moving, and those feet. And if they get too sore, your feet, after scurrying around on the clock, day after day, hour after hour, mile after mile, picking and packing the latest pair of trainers you can't afford, or a plastic gizmo to be shipped off in a box too big overseas and dumped within weeks, you can always avail of the free painkiller dispenser. Yes, they installed vending machines to dispense free painkillers in the Amazon workhouses. It's cheaper, you see, to install one of those than to give workers proper breaks or even supply them with decent footwear. It's just one of the many techniques, bits of gearing, that the big corporations have developed to be able to squeeze out that little bit of extra value at the margin. There are plenty of others. The precarious conditions, the zero-hour contracts, the outsourcing, the subcontracting and sub-subcontracting extended so far that nobody can see what's going on anymore. And that's one of the key sets of gears in the whole crank economy. The conceptual and physical machinery devised to distribute invisibility. It turns out the more you can abstract, the more you can extract. If the people way, way down the supply chain are so far and so many times removed that you don't even know they're there, don't even realise that without them working hard all day, we, you and I, could not maintain our way of life, then it's easy to ignore their needs, easy to think you have no responsibility to them. Indeed, that's built into the credo of the dominant economic paradigm. As a market participant, I ought not to concern myself with what happens to others. Don't take my word for it. Listen to someone who knows his markets. When George Soros was asked about his highly profitable role in the Asian currency crash of 1997, he replied, As a market participant, I don't need to be concerned with the consequences of my actions. The human impact, the jobs lost, the lives turned upside down, are simply cropped out of the account, rendered invisible. These real bodily human beings with their hopes and desires and fears and families and pets and hobbies and fondness for a particular kind of bread, who like this newspaper and not that, who can't stand country music but would miss it if it were gone, are all reduced to abstractions, reduced by being viewed from a great height, 
to the status of so many moving dots? And would it really trouble you if I were to offer you, like some latter-day Harry Lime, $20,000 for every one of those dots that stopped moving? And some of them do, you know, stop moving. I mean, we've just come past the seventh anniversary of the collapse of the Rana Plaza building in Bangladesh, an avoidable industrial accident that killed over 1,100 people. That this was an absolute outrage was clear at the time, but that didn't stop Forbes magazine from publishing an article saying, Tragedies such as this naturally provoke emotional reactions, but reason and perspective, rather than emotion, are needed when deciding how to respond. Before going on to argue that US employers should neither pull out of the country nor invest in safety equipment for the workers. They should not pull out because such factories employ some 4 million workers and in the grand scheme of things they, the Bangladeshis, are better off with the factories than they would be without them. The benefits outweigh the risks. Does it surprise anyone that at no point does the author of this lofty and noble judgment ask any Bangladeshi workers what they actually want? No more than the European powers gathered at the Berlin Conference of 1884 asked any Africans if they wanted their land carved up between England, France and Belgium. It's true, let's be clear, that simply pulling out and shutting down all the factories, immediately throwing millions of people suddenly into unemployment, would not help, to say the least. And indeed, that's exactly what's happening at the moment. As a result of the pandemic, many UK and Euro-American companies are cancelling clothing orders after the work has already begun and have no intention of picking up the cost of the materials or the labour. So no, we should not be pulling out. Rather, what we, you and I, should be doing is demanding of our companies that they pay more, that they do invest in that safety equipment, that they treat everyone in the supply chain as a partner and not just as a more or less costly input. You can't separate the product from everything that goes into producing it. The materials, the sweat, the skill, the pollution or otherwise, the rickety buildings or otherwise. Yet that's exactly what the abstractive, extractive, crank economy demands of us. All we are allowed to see is the finished product shining on the supermarket shelf and the price ticket. The only eyes we meet in the abstract market are eyes that take no account of your existence, nor you of theirs, except as buyer or seller. The rest must remain invisible, rather like the profits extracted and whisked overseas to what get called tax havens, but which should be called tax voids, black boxes designed to keep profits hidden away from public scrutiny. Well, you can avoid taxes, but you can't evade responsibility. The corporations who claim, like Soros, that they don't need to be concerned about the consequences of their actions should start getting concerned because the transition is coming. Of course, it should have already come. The crank economy should have died or at least begun to self-destruct after the crash of 2008. The 40-year experiment in handing more power to the disembodied, abstract market should have been read as a conclusive ethical and socio-political failure, a move away from democracy, not towards it. But somehow, the political establishment, with the assistance of some very wealthy donors, persuaded enough people, not everyone, but enough of them, that the best thing to do to recover from the crash would be to get the crank turning again as fast as possible. And so we fell to and got cranking, returning the big corporations to profit, no strings attached, pushing soft loans instead of prison sentences to those who had driven the economy into the ground and rolling out a programme of huge and lasting cuts for the ordinary citizens, the commoners, because, we were told, we had to live within our means and there was no magic money tree. 
Today, with the pandemic forcing businesses to pull down the shutters, there are those who would like to try the same game plan once more. Go to the public purse to get the sort of support that only the public as a whole can provide. Then afterwards, pat them on the back and ask them to tighten their belts, shoulder another round of austerity and get that crank turning again. To get our businesses back into profit as quickly as possible. After all, we're all in this together. Meanwhile, even during the pandemic, the gears get cranking again. In the UK, research from Autonomy shows a million of the people we now rightly cheer on as frontline workers are on what could be called poverty pay, and not coincidentally, 98% of those are women. And a report from the High Pay Centre shows that between a fifth and a quarter of the country's top companies are planning to use public money to cover 80% of the wage costs of some of their workers. In the US, 80% of tax breaks created by the COVID-19 bailout go to the wealthy and to big business. Hedge fund investors are set to benefit most from the package. Oh, and wealthy real estate owners. Good job none of them are in any position of political power, eh? I mean, we wouldn't want those who are set to benefit from increasing inequality to be in a position to write the rules and adjudicate on their fair application. But of course, that's exactly what we do have. Wealth is power. It's power to hire and fire on your own terms, especially ever since the first act of both the Margaret Thatcher and the Ronald Reagan governments was to strip power from the unions and give it to corporations. It's power to write the rules or bend them in your own favour, power to pour resources into campaigns to elect politicians favourable to you so that one person may mean one vote, but that person may not have all that much choice between one market-friendly politician and another. And it's power to buy all the newspapers and other media outlets you need in order to get your message across day in, day out, knocking down every proposal to give the commoners back some degree of power. So many gears in the machinery, all pointing the majority of their forces vertically. But if it didn't come after the crash of 2008, surely the change is coming now. We have seen, during this pandemic, the cloaks of invisibility usually thrown over care workers and cleaners and shelf stackers and posties and delivery drivers torn off. And as for the staff of the NHS, we stand out and applaud them on Thursdays. Great, but applause is not enough. It's time for a great revaluation. There's a new world coming and it's ours for the making. So let's start by getting away from the crank and developing a new political and economic model. What will it look like? Well, let's get back up that hill. It's a glorious Monday morning and I'm back up at the lead mines and in the papers there's reports that the Prime Minister has gone back to Downing Street after his illness and that there's talk of easing some of the conditions of the lockdown. Well, It might be too soon to ease the restrictions entirely, but what happens when we do get to that point and when the crisis has largely passed and we start to ease restrictions? Are we to go back to business as usual? Are we to go back to normal? Well, as someone said, normal was what got us into this mess in the first place. Business as usual just won't do. So what should we do? Yesterday I looked out over to my right and saw Scrabble Tower and the Morns beyond. Today if I look over to my left, there are the remains of the lead mines. There's the tower of an old windmill, which used to crank, there's that word again, material up a short ramp to be processed. And beyond that there are two working turbines dwarfing the the first. These are um, 
electricity generating turbines they are slowly spinning in the wind and generating clean power from a renewable resource and if I look down the peninsula there's several more scattered all about right down the peninsula and across to the shores of the loch and it seems to me that if the carjack was a metaphor for the crank economy that pointed all its forces vertically or the majority of its forces vertically then these turbines are a good metaphor for what we need as the new normal. Imagine if these were not just situated in the community but owned by the communities in which they were situated. You would have locally owned power sources feeding into a common grid uh, that would spread sustainably generated power horizontally to circulate throughout our neighbourhoods. It seems to me that is uh, a metaphor for the kind of economy that we need to move towards. And we may just have the opportunity to do it, the chance at any rate, it's not a certainty. But we've been here before. If you look back at what happened after the Second World War, when the ordinary working class soldiers came home and were given the chance to bring back the Conservative government and to go back to business as usual, if you like. Here's your medal, now get back to work. They said, we'll get back to work, but on these conditions. We want a national health service, we want a social security network, we want old age pensions, we want all the rest of it that was brought in at that stage. Similarly now, if and when we are asked to go back to business as usual, we'll say, we'll get to work, yes, but these are the conditions. For example, if a company, a profitable company, comes to the government now, on behalf of the people, we need to be pressing them to say, yes, we're very glad you came to the public for help at this time of need, but now here's our conditions. We want workers on your board. We want a pay rise for the lowest paid in your company. We want your money out of the tax havens and out into the open where we can see whether you're paying your fair share or not. We want a wealth tax so that anybody whose wealth is increasing at astronomical rates share the burden of getting the economy back to work in a different way. It won't be easy. There'll be those who want us to go back to turning the handle of the crank as fast as possible. But we can't do that. We can't continue to crank wealth up to a few individual spikes. We need to turn the gearing on its side and build an economy which is designed to generate wealth that's held in common. In short, we need to build a new commonwealth.